The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and 1077 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Tech Talk Radio. It's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Andrew Mitchell. And it's always fun time in technology. This week is going to be all things artificial intelligence because AI has just been invading the world. We're going to talk about how AI has become a growing part of our criminal justice system. And we're going to answer a critical question. Do artificial intelligence robots need bodies in order to think like people, to body or not to body? That is the question. And this week we're going to feature Sebastian Trun. He's a, a man who's been working on AI his whole life. He was founder of uh, Udacity, which is an online um, course delivery program using massive online courses called MOOCs. He also was founder of Google X, which of course ran the autonomous vehicle program for Google. And they, among other things, came up with Google Glass. And he's just devoted his life to trying to make autonomous vehicles better. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an, an email from Al Metzer in Smithburg. Dear tech gurus, this popped up on one of my security feeds. Well, I just can't wrap my head around the concept of owning imaginary property. And the idea that can be stolen gives me a headache. You know, imaginary property, I'm thinking in terms of Bitcoin, for instance. However, this raises the question, what's the difference between one Bitcoin and 12,000 acres in Metaslovakia? <laughs> Other than the fact that Bitcoin's easier to spend. On a side note, going back a couple of weeks, I loved Andrew's Dean Dean observation. Back when I was a student at UT, we had Dean Martin, his title, and thought you would enjoy hearing that Dotary Hall was where Dean Dean would have had his office flanked by Ferris and Bueller Halls. Hard to believe that that got past the planning stages. Your faithful listener, Al Metzer from Smithburg, Maryland, a very small town, but our guys answer the Camp David 911 calls. 
Now, Doc, before you answer the question, okay. you brought up Ferris and Bueller. So, I mean, we've got to mention this Ferris Bueller's Day Off, of course. And uh, we, sh- I, I found a, a take from Ferris himself on the value. And this is a topic for us, you know, the value of going to college. This is from the opening scene. And Ferris is faking an illness. And he's actually convinced his parents to the point where now he's pretending he wants to go to school. And they don't <laughs> let him get out of bed. So he says... I have a test today. No. I have to take it. I, I want to go to a good college so I can have a fruitful life. <laughs> and that's it. That's the value <laughs> of picking the right school. That's right. He's, he's working his parents, trying to say what they want him to yeah, say. Yeah. Okay, now about virtual property. Let's, let's okay, get to Okay, let's out. talk about virtual properties. Okay, Al, the key is the blockchain not the gas that pays for the validation of the blockchain. Now, the gas that pays for it is the fees that you pay to pay people to do the validation, and you pay them in cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or Ether or any of these other um, digital currencies, and that's the gas. I think the magic of the blockchain is that you can convince somebody to do a lot of work on your behalf and all you give them is a string of zeros and ones. It costs you nothing to produce. So they've created value out of nothing, which is very interesting. But the real, the real hero in this, Al, is not the Bitcoin. It's the blockchain. Because you see, um, a blockchain is a public ledger that is immutable. And each block of the ledger is tied to another block, is tied to another block, and through various uh, cryptography tricks and of the trade, if any part of that block changes, it fouls up the rest of the block, and they can tell something's been changed. So the blockchain cannot be changed, and it's locked in place. Now, now why is that good? Suppose that your 12,000 acres in Meadow, Slovakia, you'd record it down at the courthouse at the deed, uh, with a deed at the courthouse. And then you have a corrupt official that goes in and he changes the county records. I had a friend where this was done to their house in Pakistan. It took them four years to get their house back. So you see, manual records are always subject to error or fraud. Had the 12,000 acres in Meta Slovakia, been recorded on a blockchain, the official couldn't have changed it. So I think blockchain is going to be used for credentials, for land transfers. It's also a very good way to track transfers for art. And this is the first improvement in accounting systems since double entry accounting was, was invented by the Medici's back in Florence in the Middle Ages. Now, Doc, there's one thing, though. So basically virtual property, though, because it's about blockchain. So Bitcoin or virtual property, they're both really a kind of cryptocurrency. They both have the same function and value then, right? I mean, the, because it's the technology that makes it valuable. Well, the, the Bitcoin, well, what, what, the, what they did with the Bitcoin to make it like gold, they, they did a very interesting thing when, uh, when he invented Bitcoin. He said in order to get the right to validate the block, the next block, when you're paid in Bitcoin, you have to do this complicated calculation. Really complicated. It takes a lot of effort. And if you're the first one to finish the complicated calculation, we will award you the right to validate the block. 
And so it's like you've really worked for it, and they call that mining. And then over time, uh, the Bitcoin uh, algorithm would award fewer and fewer Bitcoins. So it was harder and harder to get Bitcoins. And then they capped the number of Bitcoins to only 21 million so they could create scarcity. So they tried to create uh, an ecosystem that sort of was like mining gold. And because of that, Bitcoin, because of its scarcity, has a value in and of itself uh, just because people will buy it. Now, there's no intrinsic value, but it has an extrinsic value because of scarcity. It was actually an extremely clever way to use, you know, human psychology to get people to do something for you and give them what is actually has no intrinsic value. So you'd rather have Bitcoin than 12,000 acres in Metaslovakia? I would. I'd probably rather have the 12,000 acres, actually. Why is that? <laughs> Because it has intrinsic value. Bitcoin has no intrinsic value. It has extrinsic value because of supply and demand. <clears throat> Land, even if there's a, a real estate crash, which means the extrinsic value goes down to very low value, you still have the intrinsic value that you can grow corn on it. And so uh, so the land actually has intrinsic value. I, I uh, you know... It's not that I'm totally throwing out all things that have intrinsic value. It's just that I'm just fascinated by the fact that um, that Satoshi Nakamoto created a method that could convince people to expend all this effort to be awarded something that has no intrinsic value. So the blocks are independently validated. Now, why that's important, by the way, you see, if you say, uh, if you've got a bank account at the bank, who, who validates your ledger? One guy, the central authority. And if there's some crook there, it's, it's not good. Or the case of the county records, you've got one central authority validating the, the records. In the case of, of blockchain, uh, you've got a lot of people who are validating the records. So it, it, it becomes less uh, susceptible to, uh, to fraud and to, to dishonesty. So I, I think it's just a clever solution. But I think what has happened, people have started focusing on speculation on the value of the cryptocurrency rather than looking at what applications you could actually, what you could actually do with the, with the blockchain itself. And that's the press, because the press never really tries to understand anything. And it's a lot, a lot easier to talk about speculating on Bitcoin than it is to explain the value of the blockchain. We got an email from James Messick. Oh, this is to you, Andrew. Andrew, oh. I just wanted to tell you that you've been doing a great job as the new co-host of Tech Talk Radio. I know you had big shoes to fill, but I think you do an excellent job. But I am glad that Mr. Big Voice stayed on the staff. James Messick, Kernersville, North Carolina. James, thanks for the feedback. I agree with you, too. Well, thank you both. Yeah, you got, uh, you're getting your own fan mail now, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's costing me dearly, but not in Bitcoin. <laughs> we got an email from Jim in Bowie. Dear Tech Talk, I just bought a Roku box and have the choice connect, connected to the Internet over Wi-Fi or using an Ethernet cable. Now, the Roku... Box, Roku box is close enough to the router to connect it to the cable, and the Wi-Fi signal is strong there, too. My question is, is there advantage to using one method over the other? Jim in Bowie. 
Well, by the way, Roku box, it's a streaming box and you can plug it into your TV and you can stream content like Netflix or Prime Video. Uh, so you can stream content into your box using that using that Roku box. It's a, ver it's a very convenient interface. I've, I have a Roku. Uh, I've got one Roku. Mostly I'm an Apple TV guy for the streaming, but, uh, but I do have one Roku and it's very convenient. Now, there is a rule of thumb, uh, Jim, for connecting devices to the router. If you're close enough to the router that you can connect using Ethernet, I'd just use Ethernet because Ethernet is always going to be faster than Wi-Fi and it's ver and it's guaranteed to be more stable. Now, a wired, e a wired Ethernet connection should help prevent buffering or any temporary streaming interruptions due to Wi-Fi signal loss. Now, there's another advantage of keeping your Wi-Fi network keeping it off your Wi-Fi network is because if you've got, um, uh, you know, your Wi-Fi network only has so much capacity. So if you actually are using uh, the Ethernet connection, that way the Wi-Fi capacity can be reserved for all the other devices on the network, like your maybe, an, you know, other, um, you know, cell phones, tablets, uh, laptop computers. And so, um, I, I think it certainly does make sense. For instance, I'm, uh, whenever I'm doing the, the show remotely and I've got a, a setup here with a mic and, um, and I stream into the studio, I'm connected hardwired with Ethernet because I get zero buffering. It just it gives me a much better signal. I, um, it took me a while to actually finally arrive at that conclusion. Uh, I originally was doing it through Ethernet, and there was some buffering that was interfering with the audio quality. So then I tried to use uh, Powerline Ethernet, and that was too noisy for my system. So ultimately, I bought a 50-foot Ethernet cable, and it's strung across the living room and goes from the, um, from the table here to the router. So I would say it's not particularly convenient, but it's a it's really a good um, a good connection. But, but that cable the is there just during the show. Yeah, it's not like there all the time. Well, theoretically, it's not supposed to be. Uh oh, <laughs> <laughs> we don't we don't clean up after ourselves. Is that right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you See, don't put I, away I kinda, things. I kind of have it tucked tucked along. Oh. And so that is that is <laughs> the. Uh, that is the big debate in the household. Should I coil it up and hide it I see. after the show or just okay. leave it until the next show? Yeah, so, we know what the so, human nature says, leave it. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Okay. Um, we got an email from Ashley in Virginia Beach. Dear Tech Talk, I use Chrome as my main browser and it tends to load pages that have many photos on it at a snail's face. I know this is a Chrome issue because... Uh, they load a lot faster with Edge or Firefox. How can I make the Chrome load photo-heavy pages faster? It's my favorite browser, but it's driving me nuts. Doc, Ashley, have you ever known? I mean, Chrome, Chrome is definitely my favorite browser, and I've never noticed this particular problem. It, it's, you're, you're probably configured correctly. Uh, Chrome, Chrome recently came out. Actually, in Chrome 37, they introduced what they call a GPU rasterizing, where the images are rendered using the graphics processor, so it offloads it from the CPU in your uh, in your computer, and uh, and you can set that you can toggle that where you can either use GPU rasterization or not. And uh, what I'm thinking is that 
his Chrome browser is, is set up not to use GPU rasterization. It came out with Chrome version number 37. And like, for instance, if you, if you're, uh, you know, if you're rendering some uh, workload, it, it, you might go from 100 milliseconds per frame down to 45 milliseconds per frame just by offloading to the GPU. So I, I don't have a problem with Chrome either. And I went and checked and, I, and, and my uh, GPU rasterization is activated. So you can you simply can go to uh, Chrome double slash flags slash enable GPU rasterization. Uh, I'll, I'll, and by I'll put the way, rasterization, the, the yeah, rasterization is just, the word of the day. Just, and you just uh, you just turn it on, and and I think that should that should solve your problem. So we by the e way, Doc, yes? uh, it, rasterization is the word of the day. I mean, I've never heard it. I just looked it up here. The process by which most modern display systems turn electronic data into projected images. So rasterization in the U.S. spelled with a Z, not an S. Yes, that is correct. Because when it's scanned onto the screen, you know, scanned line by line by line by line. So you have to fill the dots into each of those lines. And the scanning process is... Is raster, you know, it's it's a raster, and so you're basically converting it from a picture into a, an image that is scanned. Yeah, it takes a lot of uh, processing power to do that. We got an email from Tom in Whitestone. Dear Tech Talk, I'm renewing my internet package this month, and I've got all these options from budget internet all the way up to gigabit per second for a premium price. How much download speed do I actually need, Tom, in Whitestone, Virginia? Well, Tom, actually, you probably need less than you think. Uh, now, although the, uh, the Internet company, inter Internet service providers, they want to sell you as much as they can so they can get more money. And if, and if you don't use it, all the better for them. For instance, if you just do email only, you need about one megabit per second. If you stream uh, music, like over Pandora, need about two megabits per second. If you're just doing general web browsing and, you know, when there are a lot of pictures, you might be three megabits per second. If you're a big social media guy, um, a lot of downloading stuff there, five megabits per second. If you're online gaming, five megabits per second. Video conferencing, five meg like Zoom or Microsoft Teams uh, or uh, Skype. Uh, that'd be five megabits per second. Which sounds if, really low, by the way, surprisingly low. Yeah, You'd think somehow it, it, it would it, take it, more, right? It's not really that much. If you're high-definition video streaming, five megabits per second only. If you want to do 4K video streaming, 15 megabits per second. So what you do is you look at all your devices in your house. Suppose you've got three TV screens, and you're gonna, maybe you're going to be watching 4K video. That's only 45 megabits per second. Then maybe you've got a couple of laptops that are uh, maybe doing video conferencing, maybe three laptops. That's another 15 megabits per second. So you're looking at 16 megabits per second. I mean, 60 megabits per second to support those devices. I know down here at the at the Bay House, I, uh, you know, I was I was bumping along at about I had about 75 megabits per second download. Now, the thing is, they, they tell you 75, but really you don't get 75. You get less than that. And I was doing just fine uh, until the grandkids came down and they were streaming a second uh, 4K movie on the other TV. And I started getting some buffering. So I, um, so I, I went to the next tier 
and I, um, you know, I, it went from 75 megabits per second to 250. I went to the next tier, and the uh, and the buffering went away. I don't really need that much. It's it, it turns out hardly anybody's going to need a gigabit per second. I mean, you've got to have an awful lot of TVs in the house to use a gigabit per second. Um, I suppose if you were downloading uh, all kinds of movies, you know, using, you know, you know, using some of these peer to peer sharing programs, you could use it, I guess, if, and they could download a lot of things at the same time. But for just normal usage, you're, you're, you're just not not going to need that much. So I would really look at what you need and not buy more than you need because you're just uh, you're just you're just wasting your money. On the other hand, I do like to have a faster internet connection than my neighbor. So from that point of view, it is nice to be able to say, well, yeah, I do have this really high-speed internet connection. We got an email from Donna in Pittsburgh. Dear Tech Talk, I just got a new internet connection and my download speed slower than advertised. What might be causing this? Well, Donna, uh, yeah, I alluded to this in, in the last letter. Um, the router's advertised speed is theoretical. Now, you get the theoretical, you know, Wi-Fi speed, the theoretical download speeds, when everything is perfect, when there's no noise, it's perfect conditions, uh, it goes. But, you know, quite frequently, it's not a perfect condition. Now, the other thing is you're using devices like an iPhone or an Xbox One or, or maybe an old laptop, and more than likely, the devices that are connecting to the router are slower and the and the speed is going to be determined by the input device endpoint device. So you might have a, a super deluxe router, but the speed that say your old laptop is going to get is going to be based on the speed limitations of your laptop. And so that's probably what you're up against. In addition to that, when they say we've got an overall bandwidth of say uh, 1,900 megabits per second, say for an AC 1,900 router. 600 bits megabits per second is allocated to, to the 2.4 band and 1.3 a uh, 1300 megabits per second is allocated to the 5 gigahertz band now your device is usually on one band or the other so you can't get the whole bandwidth you're you're either going to be in the in the 1300 bucket or the uh or the uh, or the 600 bucket so um I wouldn't worry about it. You, I think you'll be just fine uh, getting a little slower speed. And that maybe as you get newer and newer devices, you'll be able to get your speed up. Listen, we love your email. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. We most certainly will. And uh, as long as we mention Dean Martin, I can't let the moment pass without a little bit of this. When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's amore. When the world seems to shine like you've had too much wine, that's amore. Bells will ring, tingle-ling-a-ling, tingle-ling-a-ling, and you'll sing the bell. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. The need has never been greater for healthcare professionals. 
Nursing is one of the most in-demand degrees you can have. If you are a registered nurse, you can get a fast track to a BSN and advance your nursing career to the next level. The Stratford University RN to BSN pathway can be completed fully online or in a classroom setting at the Alexandria or Woodbridge campus. Find out more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. How do you advance your career while still working full-time? With an education that fits your schedule, Stratford University allows students the flexibility to access the course material 24-7 and finish their assignments at their convenience. Pursuing your master's degree has never been easier. You can do this. Find out about graduate programs in cybersecurity, digital forensics, information systems, accounting, and more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT! Today we are going to feature Sebastian Trun. His last name is spelled T-H-R-U-N. Sebastian Trun is a German-American entrepreneur, educator, and computer scientist best known for his research on autonomous vehicles and for being the founder of Udacity, an online learning platform, and Google X. It's the big research arm of Google. Trun was born May 14, 1967 in Solingen, Germany. Doc, I'm That's glad actually- you told us that. Uh, May 14th. We have just a week to send him a, a birthday card. Oh, yeah. yeah We're next- very close to Yes, that. he will be 55 uh, next week. Wow. That's yeah. good to know. By yeah. the way, Solingen was in West Germany you know, before Back the Back when he was born. Okay. Now, he was kind of a geeky kid. Well, you'd expect that. He spent much of his free time in libraries or in front of his home computer, which was a North Star Horizon computer, and where he tried to write software programs to solve puzzles and play solitaire. He completed his intermediate examination in computer science uh, and economics and medicine at the University of Hills- Hillsheim in 1988. That was his undergraduate work. Now, he was kind of a loner. And, uh, as, a, as a lonely undergraduate student, he... Um, thrust himself into trying to understand people. Uh, And he uh, dabbled in psychology. He dabbled in economics. He dabbled in medicine. He was just trying to... Actually, he's he's a very curious individual who just likes to look at everything. Curious as in the sense of not weird, as in um, inquisitive. Inquisitive, yes. Yes, yes. okay. At the University of Bonn, he completed his uh, first degree. That's his bachelor's degree in 19... 1993. So that's and like a master's his, degree, by the way, at that point. Yeah. He, he got his uh, PhD, summa cum laude, uh, in 1995 in computer science and statistics. Then in, uh, right after he got his PhD, he joined the computer science department at Carnegie Mellon University as a research computer scientist. I mean, that was a great gig. See, uh, Carnegie Mellon is one of the leaders in, in artificial intelligence. Now, he became an assistant professor and co-director of the Robot Learning Lab at Carnegie Mellon. 
So you get this very important robot learning lab because he felt that robots should learn, not you just don't program them. As a faculty member at CMU, he co-founded the master's degree program in automated learning and discovery. And that would later become a, a, a PhD program. He's even from the very beginning, he felt that the best way, say, to teach a robot to walk was to let it learn on its own like a baby does. So you let the robot fall down and then learn from that failure. And so he was constantly building learning into his robot development. Troon left CMU in 2003 to become an associate professor at Stanford University. Uh, when he got to Stanford, he was appointed as director of the Stanford AI Lab, S-A-I-L, SAIL, in, Jan in, in January of 2004. Now, he immediately started working on robotic projects. Uh, he led the uh, robotic vehicle uh, team, robotic the, the team that developed the robotic vehicle, Stanley. They entered it in the 2005 DARPA Grand Challenge. This is where they, they had to drive on a track out in the desert and return without any assistance from the programming team. And they had to overcome and get around various obstacles. And uh, th their autonomous vehicle, Stanley, was the only one that returned. So they won a $2 million prize for, for, um, for Stanford. Uh, by the way, if, if you ever go to the National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C., you can find Stanley uh, proudly displayed there. Not just no. no at the time, I it's I, I got to tell you, Doc. It's apparently it's on loan, it's, so it's not. Don't go there today. It's on loan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it's not there. I'm crushed. <laughs> I am crushed too. But my, my weekend is shot. Right. I, I, I already had plan plans. Right. I was making weekend. plans. Yeah. I'm glad I checked. I'm glad I checked. Yeah. Wow. That, I'm glad. I would have gone down there this weekend. Yeah. And I, 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 I wanted got, to I say to something more... else about Stanley, though. You know, because uh, we think of uh, self-driving vehicles now. They're on roads that are marked, and 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 you know, there are stop signs and l white lines and yellow lines. Mm -hmm. But the, w w this this challenge that that DARPA which is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, so the U.S. government sponsored. This is a dirt course with just natural barriers and cliffs and turns and things like that. So it, you really have to teach it to recognize all many natural obstacles, not just you know well-marked roads. Yeah, see, the, the, the objective there was, was to take Stanley out to the battlefield and have an autonomous vehicle that could navigate unknown terrain as you're engaged in some kind of battle. I think that was the, the idea. Yeah. Now, the second uh, challenge, uh, a DARPA challenge in 2007, was, was, it was on more of a, of a conventional track. And, uh, and they, they created a vehicle called Junior, and uh, they won second place in that contest. I'd, they, failed, they, they didn't win first place again. Now, he was a full professor in computer science and electrical engineering at Stanford from 2007 to 2011. And uh, he, would, he was one of the most popular professors there. His class would have 200 students in it. And uh, he was really quite proud of himself. Uh, and he went and gave a, uh, a, a TED Talk. And, and at that TED Talk, there was another guy that gave a TED Talk, Sal Kahn. And Sal Kahn... Um, 
was basically a, um, a wedge fund trader who started educating his grand, his, uh, his not his grandkids, but his, uh, his nephews and nieces. And he would do little YouTube videos, really simple. And, and it, it grew into a thing where he was like sharing those videos all over the place. And Sal Khan eventually started the Khan Academy. And Sal was talking about what he was doing at the Khan Academy. And so Sebastian Troon, you know, was at Stanford teaching 200 students who were paying $54,000 a year to go to school. And here was Sal Khan, didn't have any degree in computer science. Uh, he was just a, a wedge fund trader. And he was training millions of people worldwide including Bill Gates' kids. In fact, Bill Gates is the one that had them come to TED. And that was a fateful lecture. Sebastian Troon said, you know, I'm thinking that I've got the wrong focus. I need to try to do something differently. So he went home in 2011 to his living room, and he set up an inexpensive digital camera, and he just... Instead of a fancy whiteboard like he had at Stanford, he just had napkins and magic markers. And he started writing on notes on the napkin with the magic marker. And he started teaching a class, Introduction to Artificial Intelligence. It was, a, it was actually a, a three-month class that he just started teaching at home on his own. It was actually the same class that he taught at Stanford to the kids in the lecture hall with 200 kids that were paying $54,000 a year to go to school. It was the same class. And he started teaching that. Uh, they, uh, students could submit work. He, he, he wrote a program, so all their work was, was uh, graded by a computer. So they would get it, he, he, wouldn't, he didn't grade all, all of those, all that input, but, but a computer did. And he set up a, um, a, um, you know, a threaded discussion group where if anybody had questions after class, they could go to the threaded discussion and, um, and, and they could, they could chat and there would be somebody in the threaded discussion that would just answer questions. As it turned out, he started this class, 160,000 people signed up for this class globally from more than 190 countries. And then he looked at the top 400 students in the class. Not a single one of them was from Stanford. They were just from all over the world. I mean, he had a 10-year-old kid taking it, and he had a 90-year-old a grandmother taking it. He had, uh, he had farmers in Afghanistan, people who were fighting in Afghanistan taking the class. And that's when he realized that this experiment looks like it's a significant shift in how education should be delivered. So the next year, 2012, he co-founded an online private organization, Udacity, that would offer these massive online courses, MOOCs, as they called them. Um, he actually left Stanford it, 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 he said, you know, I need to, I need to get beyond this ivory tower 
where only the where I'm only teaching the rich kids, and I've got to broaden my wings. So he left Stanford. He he left his tenured position. He 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 started Udacity. He he put a three hundred k of his own money to as seed money, and then he got other people to come in and and fund it. And uh, and they and they just started offering more and more classes. He got people from Google to offer classes on Udacity. He even got he even got other professors from Stanford to start offering uh, free classes on Udacity. So the thing was growing. I mean, it wasn't perfect because the the completion rate was not too good. It was like. 10, 10% of the people that started a course finished it, but, but at least he, he was, he was trying to figure it out. Now, what at Google, after he quit Stanford at Google, he was, he was Google VP and he was also a fellow and he decided, uh, to uh, work at Google on the development of the Google driverless car system. Now he focused on this because of, uh, because he wanted to solve the car safety problem. I think he talked about that, Andrew. Yeah, specifically one traffic death in mind. He talked about this yeah. motivation of his at a TED Talk in 2011. So here's Sebastian Trun. As a boy, I loved cars. When I turned 18, I lost my best friend to a car accident like this. And then I decided I dedicated my life to saving one million people every year. Now, I haven't succeeded, so this is just a progress report, but I'm here to tell you a little bit about self-driving cars. I saw the concept first in the DARPA Grand Challenges, where the US government issued a prize to build self-driving cars that could navigate a desert. And even though 100 teams were there, these cars went nowhere. So we decided at Stanford to build a different self-driving car, we built the hardware, the software, we made it learn from us, and we set it free in the desert. And the unimaginable happened. It became the first car to ever return from a Dark Man Challenge, winning Stanford $2 million, yet I still hadn't saved a single life. Yeah, so that was his feeling a decade ago, that despite all his work, he had not yet saved a single life. But then there was an evolution in his motivation. Uh, in an interview last uh, November, he had this to say, I have worked on transportation for more than two decades, and the impetus came from the fact that I lost a high school friend in a traffic accident. But a few years into my work, I asked myself, what problem was I solving? Making transportation safer and more accessible. Then it dawned on me that there's actually a better technical solution. And we're going to get ahead of ourselves, but he actually moves from self-driving cars to um, self-flying personal vehicles. So that's the idea that he's super safe, super fast, environment friendly. So, uh, but let's let's see. If, let's talk more about his uh, work with robotics, Doc. So he always uh, worked on autonomous robotic systems, uh, and that 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 earned him a lot of recognition. And in order to get autonomous, as I said, he wanted self learning. Like he said, that that vehicle on the desert was self learning. He always tried to solve real problems and make them personal. Like he wasn't some theoretician with his head in the clouds. These were real problems. Like in 1994, he's at the University of Bonn, he started the Rhino Project. Now, the Rhino Project's a mobile robot designed for indoor navigation and manip manip manipulation tasks. So you could go around, it, it, it could help you do things, like maybe clean the floors or go get a cup of coffee. He actually wanted to make something that would be real, and that that led to another uh, a series of 
uh, very personal robotics that were trying to solve a problem. In 97, Troon and his colleagues developed the world's first robotic tour guide for the, uh, the Dutch Museum in Bonn. And so it would take people, this robot would take people around the museum and show them different features. It's like a guided tour. In 98, uh, as a follow-up, he created Minerva. Now, Minerva was installed at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, and Minerva would actually take tourists on a, on a guided tour of the museum. He went on to found the CMU Pit Nurse Spot Project. It was a, this, this robot fielded, was an interactive humanoid robot in a nursing home near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, who could, who could answer questions for the residents and maybe uh, do things for them. Now, he also developed mine mapping tools with his colleagues. They were uh, trying to figure out where, um, where you know, in, on the battlefields where mines might be and how they might be able to extract those mines from the earth. He was always focused on real problems uh, using robots to solve real problems. Then, of course, after he moved to Stanford, he started working on the, the Stanley Project for the Grand Challenge and then uh, the Junior for the second uh, Grand Challenge. Now, Troon, as part of his sabbatical with several other Stanford students, uh, when it, while he was at Google, he, 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 went, he, he went at first, his first year at Google was on a sabbatical leave from from Stanford, and then he just decided to stay there. So at Google, he co-developed Google Street View. I use I use oh, Street I, View all the time. I do too. And if I'm going somewhere like that I haven't been before, I will often go on Street View. I want to see what the neighborhood looks like or where the sidewalk might be and things like that. I actually plan ahead using Street View a lot. Yeah, that is super good. Now, what he did, he he came up, he, he basically developed the whole field of probab probabilistic robotics. Now this marries statistics and robotics. You see what 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 happens is that when you're when a robot's trying to solve a problem, you, you don't really know. Like if it's the first time you've you've climbed a mountain, you don't know which path to take. So you so you got to look at all the different options ahead of you. So you say, well, I, I think I might have an eighty percent chance to make it to the top if I take that path, and may, maybe only a forty percent chance if I take that path. So by using probabilistic methods, um, the robots could develop an optimum strategy. And he, 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 he developed that. And, and now probabilistic techniques have made it into mainstream in robotics and are used in a lot of commercial applications. Uh, you know, he, also at Google X, his team developed Google Glass. You remember that? I remember I, that. I remember you, you talked about <laughs> wearing it and feeling really weird, and 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 that people uh, were getting into bar fights and stuff like that. If somebody walks into a bar or restaurant wearing one of those, people felt very uncomfortable I, around that. I know because because I could just tap tap the, the the glasses and I'd start recording the guy I'm looking at. So so if some guy's saying something you don't like, you just tap your glass. You're recording them, and so people at bars. Did not lie, especially out in Silicon Valley. All these Google guys were in Google Glass at night at the at the bar. <laughs> uh, eventually, the guys that wore Google Glass at the bar were called glass holes. Yes, <laughs> that's what they ended up calling them. But uh, but uh, they, but they were really great. They ended up finding a good application in uh, in industrial applications. Like for instance, if somebody. Uh, 
in a shop is trying to repair a generator and they put on Google Glass, they can look at what they're looking at and then somebody else can actually, you know, they, they can actually send that image to, to, to someone else who, who could look at it and, and they could give them some guidance. It's also, they also had some applications where you'd look at what you were trying to fix and then the Google Glass would go to the actual manual and they then would project the page of the manual that was relevant to what you were looking at. So you could look at the manual through the Google Glass at, at while you were looking at the device. And it was it was it was very convenient for repair projects. That's that's but very it, cool that you've heard of telemedicine. This is like telemechanics. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. there the Google Glass ended up being useful, but not in a social sense. It was more in an industrial sense. Now he actually, as uh, as Andrew was talking about, he, he eventually decided, you know, there's probably a better way to solve this autonomous vehicle problem if we have, you know, air taxis or personal personal flying cars. So he is currently the CEO of Kitty Hawk. Now, this was a, a company that he co-founded with Larry Page from Google. It's one of the moonshots. And uh, he thinks that could be a better option for Yeah, uh, I mean, he's saying, let's take traffic off the roads and put it in the air. Now, I don't know how I feel about that personally, because the thought of that scares me a little as I look out the window right now and I see a clear, you know, clear sky. I'm just trying yeah. to imagine lots of little things flying around out there. <laughs> well, some, somebody asked him what, what kind of projects he likes to work on. Yeah. And he says, he says I like to work on projects where I'm, I really uh, don't know anything about them. I'm probably not even qualified to work on it. He says, because if I pick a project like that, I'm going to learn a lot. So he said, you know, I like this. Uh, I like this Kitty Hawk project where we have to make autonomous airplanes. He says, because I know nothing about airplanes. And so he, th- this is how he picks his projects. He picks things that are really hard that he doesn't know anything about. And then he has an accelerated learning curve. He actually says, process. I want to pick things I'm bad at. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he does. And- he says, you know, why waste your time on things you're good at? You're not going to learn anything. Now, he's very athletic. He's run half a dozen marathons. He snowboards. He kite surfs. He's an avid road cyclist. And last couple of years, he did a, they, uh, he, he did a couple of 100-mile races, which is really wow. endurance. Actually. I know so he likes to be on his bike for a long time because it gives him a chance to think through problems. Yeah. yeah so he talks about that. There you go. This, this guy is really, is really transforming uh, robotics. By making robotics very approachable and understandable, and he's solving real problems that are going to affect real life. There you go. Everything you need to know about Sebastian Trung, Trung, the founder of Udacity, of Google X, and the man behind a lot of the progress on autonomous vehicles. Yeah, and a man who believes that, you know, you can make failure your friend. So pour yourself a coffee, pull up a chair as we join Doc in the virtual faculty lounge for his observations on making failure your friend, next on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. 
the need has never been greater for healthcare professionals. Nursing is one of the most in-demand degrees you can have. If you are a registered nurse, you can get a fast track to a BSN and advance your nursing career to the next level. The Stratford University RN to BSN pathway can be completed fully online or in a classroom setting at the Alexandria or Woodbridge campus. Find out more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. How do you advance your career while still working full-time with an education that fits your schedule? Stratford University allows students the flexibility to access the course material 24-7 and finish their assignments at their convenience. Pursuing your master's degree has never been easier. You can do this. Find out about graduate programs in cybersecurity, digital forensics, information systems, accounting, and more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for observations from the faculty lounge. Now let's consider innovation in the eyes of Sebastian Trum. Innovation itself is an experimentation and learning process, according to Sebastian. You have to embrace the future with uncertainty. Failure is your friend because you're forced to learn something new and it strengthens your ability to make good decisions the first time around. It's the only way forward. When you fail, it forces you to do something no one else has ever done before. Now, Sebastian Trunk says there are two types of people. He likes one type, but he doesn't like the other type. He categorizes them as type A and type B. Now, the type A is the expert, the one who knows everything. They come to you with a plan, with all the ideas and details worked out. They want to make sure that everybody participates in a consensus of what they're doing. They love large teams. Sebastian avoids this kind of person like the plague. Now, the type B person you see less often, and that's what Sebastian is attracted to. A type B person has a vision, but actually they're kind of honest about their predicament. They admit that they really don't know, they don't really have a clue as to how they're going to reach their goal, but, but they think it is reachable, they just don't know how they're going to do it. Now, this person has the strongest vision. They know they're going to fail along the way, but they don't mind failure because they figure failure is the pathway to the right idea. And that's exactly the way that Sebastian has done all of his work. Now, the type B personality like small teams. They don't like these giant teams of bureaucracy. Like, for instance, the Google's driverless car program at uh, Google X only had 12 engineers in it. It was a very small team. Now, the team was not afraid to break the rules. Um, he said, that's really important. you got to break the rules, do what people don't think you should do. That's the way to discover something new. And uh, Sebastian thinks the more people you got on the team, it'll only make the situation worse. You'll have a bureaucracy. You'll have all kinds of rules. 
and you'll 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 have a hard time innovating. So it's clear that Sebastian Frung is a type B innovation leader. Yeah, he he actually said, I, you know, in the same interview that I quoted a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. First of all, management like if you have two complications on a large team. First of all, management above you and beside you are all strong-willed and strong-minded people who all have their own perspectives. So at a large company like Google, you have to be able to defend yourself quite a bit. And second, you just can't have a personal relationship with everybody important in a large team. So you have to, you know, because it requires a re- incredibly good communication, you have to be incredibly clear with your team. And you can only do that with a small group of people whom you get to know well. That that was his idea of having a small team. Yeah, it makes sense. It's, a, you know, it's, a, it's, it's a, you know, they have the two, there was, what it was a rule that uh, I've heard, it's the two pizza rule. You don't want a team with that uh, needs more than two pizzas for dinner. That I've never heard of, but that's a great one. So what is that for? Wait a minute, but that's two pizzas for dinner. Uh, well, it depends on how large. Like two large pizzas, two extra yeah, large two, pizzas? Yeah, two, two large pizzas. Oh, okay. <laughs> the two pizza rule. So we could get to uh, 12 people that way. If Yeah, yeah. So there you know everything that you want to know about innovation, according to Sebastian Prung. Yeah, Doc, we've only got a few minutes left, so I guess we're going to talk some more. Because we we did uh, have a few more things to say about artificial intelligence as long as it's on our minds today. Let's talk about uh, the new approach to AI, thinking about through analogies. Now, this was actually uh, an article that was suggested by Bob of Maryland, one of our one of our longtime listeners. He, this was research done by Melanie Mitchell, an AI researcher, and says AI will never be truly like ours until you can make it think with analogies, like people do. She thinks machines need to be able to make good analogies before they can approach human-like artificial intelligence. Now, she spent six years collaborating closely on Copycat, a computer program which, in the words of the co-creators, was designed to discover insightful analogies and to do it in a psychologically realistic way. Now, Copycat would come up with uh, very simple patterns, like uh, like patterns of letters. And so you'd look patterns of letters and try to infer something from it, and then you could do that inference by looking at analogies of other patterns that you'd seen before. Now, she thinks that AI systems should apply existing knowledge to to real problems to help them understand the data they're manipulating. For instance, we want self-driving cars, one one that that they face problems that they've never seen before. Now, it turns out if you just train it on data sets only, you're not going to be able to have every single situation that you're going to come up with in a self-driving car. Maybe, Maybe the cat is partially covered by... The, the sign, not fully out, and then that's that's different. But if you can operate with analogies, you can you you can you can actually, uh, you know, like a human has no problem. They can see a cat which is partially there, and they think, okay, that cat might jump out, or if they see a baby, it could jump out. And so, what they're trying to do is have uh, these systems learn through analogies. And I mean, one approach is uh, where the machines learn. They, they teach themselves through through unsupervised learning or self-supervised learning, and that has come more and more and more. This technique has, has been integral to what everything that Sebastian did already. Now, one of the issues that, she, that Mitchell was trying to arrest, this is very interesting, 
one of the issues she was trying to address is, uh, you know, like a, a human being has no trouble walking around. And when they look at, at another human being and they try to predict what they're going to do, they refer it back to their own body because they have a body experience of how their body operates. They can use that knowledge to predict how somebody else is going to is going to operate and they can predict what other individuals are going to do. And so the question that uh, Mitchell was trying to answer was, do robots need bodies in order to have enough analogies to build on to be as smart as humans? That was the question, to have a body or not to have a body. And I'm telling you, uh, Mitchell believes that you really do need a body in order to get the full breadth of understanding of like, like humans do, learning through analogies. I mean, if you look at uh, Sebastian, he, he liked to teach robots to walk by letting them fall down and sort of learn their, learn their rules. What, what do you think, Andrew? Do you think robots need bodies or not, don't need bodies in order to learn? I don't know. Maybe in the sense, first of all, because we're teaching them to think like us. Like, and he talked mm-hmm. about that too. Like when he was developing the self-driving car, it's like, well, this is what we do, you know, as humans. Now you figure out what you should do based on what we think we should do. And 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 analogy is like a fancy word, but all you're really doing is drawing on your experience. So if a certain right. kind of situation, you know, if you if, oh, easy one, if you see a cat in the road, it might run across. But if you see a dog at the edge of the road, it also might run across. So there's your analogy. Well, I've seen cats do it. Dogs might do it too. Or, and then a human being might do it too. And those are, that's an analogy. If you've never seen a human before at the side of a road, but you're thinking about cats and dogs, then that's an analogy. So the idea that we have a body, so much of what we learn is physical. We have physical memory. We have physical experiences and sensations. And we learn a lot of our, our hardest lessons in life the physical way. Like, you know, I fell. I hurt myself. I won't do that again. So, yeah, it could probably only help. Uh, an artificial intelligence device, don't you think? Yeah, it makes it easier to learn. Actually, yeah, uh, you know, when you're trying to learn learn new things, because you can you can extend your knowledge by say, well, I think you know, it's easier to extend your knowledge by sort of extending the analogy until finally the analogy doesn't doesn't work. Um, uh, you know, the, the 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 whole neural network in, in the brain is is a, is an associative memory where you associate A to B, and so. Learning by analogies is is sort of central to what the human mind does best because you're using that associative memory feature and uh, and it's easier to uh, to write the rules if you learn if you go through analogy you're not you're not just giving it a whole bunch of rules you're 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 letting it build on a knowledge base a self learning knowledge base listen we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. And we'd like you to go to the Stratford University website, www.stratford.edu, and check out our programs. We've got nursing. We've got health sciences. We've got um, software engineering. We've got um, computer networking, uh, cybersecurity. We have all kinds of programs in hospitality, culinary arts, as well as business and accounting. And when you find your programs at www.stratford.edu, tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. 
Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.